Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome to a continuation of what has been uh, a very stimulating discussion. Uh, and we, we want to continue now by bringing some of these uh, theoretical and historical considerations together with questions of policy and, more specifically, questions about the, uh, the role of religion in thinking about the economic life. Uh, so we are three speakers uh, this afternoon, are John Stanisoulis uh, from uh, Warwick, uh, David Vines uh, from the uh, Center for International Macroeconomics here at Oxford, and uh, Rowan Williams, uh, distinguished leader of, uh, in church and uh, society, and currently at uh, Modlin uh, College in Cambridge. Uh, I should also announce, uh, for the benefit of all, that uh, this book, Our Markets Moral, edited by the Skidelskys, is available in signed uh, copies by the editors and uh, for free. Uh, so a very uneconomic uh, uh, transaction available to you this afternoon, uh, and we express gratitude to them for that, along with all of their other uh, contributions to the discussion today. Uh, let me ask John Thanasoulis to uh, begin as our first speaker, and then, then uh, so that you can see the slides, we'll take seats down in front here. So um, let me start by thanking Nigel. Thank you very much. It's uh, an honour to be asked to, 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 um, to speak today. I very much enjoyed the book. Uh, the book, the argument, is incredibly compelling. I'll say so in a couple of slides. I actually had to think quite hard uh, for criticisms, but in the end I did find some. So um, I, will, I will go through those uh, in, in whatever, in the sort of five or six slides that I, that I have. Um, and perhaps we should do questions as we've done before at the end uh, rather, than, rather than through. Okay, so let me start by making an observation because there was a bit of an essence in which this was clearly a critique of economics. The authors, you know, you can't help feeling that they had a beef with the subject that they, they, they felt they wanted to settle. And it's interesting to note that economics is a solution. So I'm one of the people who they're really talking about, this deathly orthodoxy that sails under the name, it felt, I felt I couldn't really take somebody else's papers, so I thought I'd take one of my own. I'm trained as a mathematician. There's one I wrote. This is about short-termism, actually, and about how firms, uh, how, how executives should be remunerated to prevent short-term actions. Think Enron and how we might, might deal with them. So, yes, I'm part of that deathly orthodoxy, I suppose, but all the tools, you'll notice, that the book concludes with are essentially economic ones. The universal income or the basic income funded through taxation and expenditure, expenditure tax, disallowing firms to write off advertising as a business expense. That, if that's not an economic solution, I'm not sure what it is. So, so economics is clearly core. That's my, my first point. Second point is there's a lot of criticism in the book about rational choice and essentially homo economicus, the idea of a uh, of an agent who just maximises utility and behaves in a very mathematical fashion. But economics, 
I mean, I almost struggle to recognise that description of economics because it really is quite far away from what a giant chunk of the profession is doing. Because it is about humans, obviously, but it's also about firms. And the basic assumption which we're building on is one I suspect many of you don't think is that controversial. It is that executives, firms, are out to maximise profits. And if that's what they're doing, optimisation would be the right way to go about thinking about how they behave. So to give you an indication that really is what they're doing, certainly in the US and the UK, I thought I'd make a very, very brief detour into, um, into why it is that firms maximise profits, the idea of what, what it is that shareholders' rights are, why is it that firms seek to maximise shareholder value. There's a long legal tradition on this, but it goes back to quite an interesting case. It goes back to Ford. So in 1916, Ford owned 58% of, of Ford, announced a special dividend. But then reneged. He changed his mind. He said he wanted to spend the money on a number of things, including uh, employee benefits. So the second minority shareholder, Dodge, sued on the grounds that corporations exist for the benefits of shareholders and management don't have the right to improve workers' lot at shareholders' expense. And, kind of long story short, Ford lost the case. And in that, that is, in a sense, where, certainly in US-UK markets, the shareholder maximisation, value maximisation doctrine is founded. That is the fiduciary duty of shareholders. And the point being, that's the job of management, to maximise profits. And if that's their job and we're interested in understanding how firms are going to interact, then optimisation is the right tool to use for that task. So... There is a role for this sort of thing. So that's enough apolog- you know, sort of apologising for, for economics. But perhaps you can see a bit more where it, where it comes from. I've said already, and I agree, you know, I'll say it again, the author's argument is compelling. It's an excellent book. I very much enjoyed reading it. And I agree with, with the essential thrust of the book. I agree that we should work to live or to enjoy leisure uh, and not live to work. Uh, I personally didn't have the issues about the definition of leisure that, uh, that, that a number of others ha- have had. It seemed to me to work very, very well. Um, and I'd also go further and agree that consumption of riches is not going to bring about true happiness. I, I think th- those, those things are, are correct. But I worry that the policy proposals are coercive. They're all essentially taxation measures, either removing money from people or, or, or you know, giving it to others or active sumptuary laws, uh, consumption taxes. And there's, I think that there there is an avenue to explore, think a little bit more deeply about structurally changing market rules, engaging a bit more with actually how markets are structured and what the rules and laws are to do with those markets to try and bring bring about the desired conclusion. And I have some uh, three proposals at the end of the slides, which which I'll, I'll get to. But for this endeavour to succeed, a point I made in a question a bit earlier, I think we have to win, before we get to the economics of how we can change markets, we have to win, if you like, have a constituency in favour of the good life, which we should have. And that is a moral argument which needs to be won. Enter philosophy, now there's the quote, uh, a powerful force in public life uh, for 100 years ago, but then retreated into linguistic hair-splitting. So less of that and more of the you know, winning the moral argument on these, uh, on these big pictures. I think we need, we need that first. Now, some policy proposals. OK, so the idea of first big policy proposal is of 
the book calls it a basic income. It's often known as a universal income. Uh, and the idea is that it would be given to all citizens uh, rather than according, rather than means-tested in, uh, in the jargon. But just reflecting on it a little bit, the taxation burden that this implies is absolutely phenomenal. So let's just sort of run through a little bit. I suspect that you'd agree that £10,000 a year is not going to be enough for the good life in any sort of reasonable approximation of, that, of what that would be. I mean, the good life uh, we have... Uh, you know, involves some property ownership, healthy food, comfortable leisure, wine, boule. You know, you need more than £10,000 £10, for this. Uh, holiday, south of France, etc. You know, so we need at least £10,000. I looked up on the uh, 2012 survey, Office of National Statistics, over 18s, there are just under 50 million. It's actually 49,600,000 and something in the UK. If, every, if for every extra £10,000 income that we wish to provide to those 50 million people, then, then we need to raise £500 billion in tax each year. Put that into context, annual government spending at the moment is £718 billion. So if you want to raise an extra £10,000 per person, what that would mean is that you'd have to increase all taxes by at least, well, just over two-thirds. Okay, And that's assuming that people don't work less or try and avoid tax, which, of course, they, they would do. So the 40% tax band would have to increase to 67.8% to give everyone £10,000. If 10000 was a bit mean and 20000 maybe is more like what, what you need, perhaps you need more, then 40% tax band increases actually to 95.6%, which is essentially a different economic model. I mean, this isn't practical. You might recognise this. I got the picture off. The internet. So that's. Does anyone recognise this? I thought we have. We yes. Dennis Healy. Okay. Pip Squeak, talking in a different context. This is sort of complete redistribution. This is the confiscation of all assets at the point at which, all income at the point at which it's generated and then redistributed equally to all citizens. That, that you know, that if basic income is going to be given to everyone, that's really the, the policy that's being described, which I. You know, you certainly need to win the moral argument if, you're, if that's the route you're, you want to go down. Then there's the consumption tax. Okay. So the consumption tax was quite clever. It was a, a, a proposal whereby the idea is to spend, as you spend more money, you have to pay more tax to discourage the spending of money. Now, how much money have you spent? Well, one way is to actually add up, you know, every time you make a purchase, you keep a note, but that's that's quite involved. So as the book points out, it would be easier to instead identify what your incomings were. And if you spend money on capital or put money in the bank, then that's okay. But anything that isn't put in the bank or spent on capital goods, well, you must have spent it on something. So you've got to be paying, you're paying a tax. Yeah, that's your expenditure. Now, that has some quite perverse consequences. Okay, so here's the first one. The first, the issue is that Capital goods, investing in property, certainly in the, as it's proposed, and I try to be quite careful here, the, the book goes back uh, to, uh, if you in footnote 34, you'll see it, they define capital goods and that capital is exempt. So that investing, paying for houses, would not be taxed under this. That's not a luxury spending, that's part of capital spending. So the poor neurologist, for those of you that read the book, is on page 202, earns £200,000 on Harley Street, and yet is working all hours because his mortgage is huge 
um, and you know he needs to earn that money to pay the mortgage. He's not caught by these this tax because he's he's spending money on capital. He's spending money on his house, so he's not affected. Okay, so we're missing the target really that the book identified. It sort of gets worse, okay, because because of the capital distinction. If you inherit money, then that's capital. You sort of get it under the tax radar. Whereas if you want to be, if you're this first generation rich trying to spend money to get the same quality of living, you're taxed like there's no tomorrow. So, for example, suppose that you're a wealthy family and you inherit a luxury villa. That's just a random one. Don't even know if it's in France. Um, uh, a luxury villa. Then, if you want to enjoy that luxury villa, what do you have to spend? Well, transport. You're going to be taxed on that. But you inherited that. So quite small. You've got to maintain the house, but if it's just one-off maintenance, that might even come under CapEx, capital expenditure, anyway. So your expenses are quite modest. Now, if actually you didn't inherit, but you want to provide a similar quality of life, well, now you have to rent a room in that house. And that is absolutely caught by the laws. So now, for those of you who are, didn't inherit, you get totally whacked because by, by this tax because this is clearly luxury expenditure, whereas if you did inherit, this is now upkeep of a capital gain, a capital property, and that's okay. So we're not really hitting, I don't think, with this policy proposal, the right thing. It sort of gets worse. How do you treat people from abroad? Okay, if your income is abroad and you come to the UK to spend money, then that's presumably good. It brings jobs, it brings wealth. We wouldn't want to inhibit people from doing that. But then foreigners are privileged over domestic people in terms of their expenditure in the country. That's a bit bizarre. And in t- indeed, what would the tax do? Well, it would encourage assets to be... If you're taxed on assets, it encourages you to remove assets from the country so that you don't get taxed on them, which is a phenomenon which is well recognised. You can probably guess, what do are, what are these football clubs have in common? Russians, they're all owned by, it's all Russian assets which were stripped out of the country, I shouldn't say that, all Russians who own, who own these, um, uh, who own these football clubs, Um, and clearly that's going to weaken the tax base. So that policy proposal also is somewhat problematic. The, an issue that we were quite fruitfully discussing uh, at lunch is how you've got to be a bit careful in taking your foot completely off the pedal in terms of growth. So, in the world of enoughness, saving would be mainly for old age and to replace existing equipment, is a, is a quote from the book. So just imagine if we'd done this in the 1920s, okay? We would, we would have locked down, you know, just invested in replacing tractors and basic production facilities and hoped that the investment maintains the standard of living. In that time, of course, population has grown. And now, if we wanted to try and our young people to do jobs, what sort of environments are they going to be working in? Well, we'd have to compete to win jobs for our young people in factories that look like the one on the left and making goods that look like the one on the right. It would be completely different and it would be very difficult for our young people to then suddenly, having spent 80 years not engaging in the technological advance that led to these things, to then re-embark on, on being a productive part of the global uh, you know, of, the, of the global economy. So the complete taking the foot off the pedal is, is something that needs much more thought. One has to do it much more, much more carefully. So 
those are my, my criticisms. The, notice that economics, you know, economics is a solution here. Businesses do optimize, which is why the language of optimization and thinking in a, in a technical sense about the pros and the cons of different behaviors and regulations is absolutely the right way to go. Tax burden for universal income is totally un- impractical. Consumption taxes are difficult, especially on an international context. Be careful of asset stripping and stopping the clock's dangerous. So what can you do? Well, there are broader things you could do, and these are just some suggestions perhaps for discussion. I thought that there was very little in the way of actually engaging in how we've, the architecture of our economy, you know, the corporate governance issue. So we could, one thing that one could do is broaden stakeholders, have more worker representation. That's, that, is the, that is, for example, what happens in Germany, and, and uh, uh, Germany has a very different ethos in terms of work than, than we have here since the Second World War. Um, so that is something that one could quite reasonably do, and it maybe would have an effect. Now, leisure rights, we can certainly subsidise leisure so that it's easier for those with lower incomes to engage in things that we might find desirable, and I think it's good that, that we could do that. One concrete thing that we could try and do is move from five to four days. If we could get agreement to move to a four-day working week, that on its own, I think, would have a huge impact in terms of life, you know, sort of the, the work-life balance. And in terms of taxes, the policy that I would think more carefully about would be property wealth taxes, because property can't be removed uh, from, the, uh, from, the, uh, from the domestic scene. It can't be removed from the, from the nation. And it doesn't inhibit, because it's a wealth tax, it doesn't inhibit work, work incentives. It doesn't stop your, the, what you can do with your money and therefore your incentive to, uh, to work. And so has a beneficial impact. So those were my reflections on what I thought was an incredibly compelling book. I thought this was a remarkably interesting book, very wide-ranging, but I ended up thinking that the proposal which the book comes to, namely more leisure and less consumption, isn't the right way to think about the problem. Uh, I think that the problem is a real one and that thinking about it involves not abandoning growth but using it for the pursuit of the good life in a better way. And that's what I want to talk about. And uh, uh, what I've got to say will overlap with a lot of what others have said as well. Uh, And I thought how to organise my talk, a way of describing what I'm going to say is about five C's. And you'll see why uh, as I go through. First of all, consumption... Secondly, caring for the poor. Thirdly, capabilities. Fourthly, connectedness. And finally, culture. And this may seem like a set of category mistakes, but you will see why they connect with each other. First of all, consumption. It was Adam Smith's extraordinary contribution in The Wealth of Nations to rise to the challenge of the Enlightenment and think about a vision of aspiration for everyday people that replaced the religious aspiration of those that they, um, 
of the world that they lived in. And you'll see that my talk will come a circle, since I want to say something about this religious question at the end. Um, I owe much of this thinking about Smith to wonderful biography by Nicholas Philipson, Adam Smith and an, an Enlightened Life, which was published three years ago. One that opened the possibility of uh, a vision which opened the possibility of, of material in, an enrichment to everyday life as an alternative to religious reward in an afterworld after a, a deeply difficult, impoverished life. Uh, Smith saw that invention and technical change would make more and more things possible and make it possible to escape from what later became the Malthusian idea of poverty. Uh, 200 years later, 150, Keynes, looking at this, thought that after a certain stage we'd use these possibilities to live with greater leisure. Uh, instead, we've used these possibilities to live with more and more and more things. And the modern theory of economic growth is one in which there is perpetual invention and the discovery of new ways of making things, making the world more productive, making it possible for all to have more as time goes on. And indeed, in this modern theory, part of the way in which capitalism works is to reward invention and the, the discovery of new things so that the whole system rewards this uh, carrying forward of the vision which Smith had. Uh, and I have much sympathy with this process. It seems to have four features. First of all, the removal of onerous labour, which lots of us have talked about. Uh, secondly, that much more is available for each of us for a rewarding life than was true in the 1930s to compare with then. Just think of the life that we live now uh, and the rewards from travel and from communication, not to speak of the onerous labour in the home, uh, the inventions not of uh, some trivial consumer product, but of, which was the wonderful example given earlier, but of having a washing machine. My mother used to spend Tuesdays washing the family clothes all day. Um, thirdly, uh, there is a uh, possibility of real uh, identity uh, and fulfilment from labour. And fourthly, there are increasing opportunities for interesting leisure. A generation ago, people couldn't go skiing in the way that they do now. This, this is a, a life which has the great attractions to it that Smith saw. Now, the Skidelskys, to summarise, have two critical objections to this sort of life. One is that much of the consumption is pointless driven by uh, relative uh, consumption desires and the needs and desires for position goods. That's one set of objections. And the second is the inequality which it can cause. Uh, and and I, I want to ask, given that this is an attractive kind of life, uh, what we might do to think about how it will could be changed by policy. Takes me to the second of my C's, caring for the poor. Uh, the 
inequality which they describe in their talk today and in the piece which was distributed, but not in the book, this extra second argument, is a very real feature of modern capitalism. And uh, it's made much more serious as a worry by globalisation. And you didn't talk about this, but part of the uh, trouble of falling real wages of unskilled labour is the availability of an an extra billion people in China for the global labour force being joined by a billion in India and many others as well. And, And these are inescapable global issues, not just questions of local British policy. And and we ask, what can we do about this? And the, the, uh, there's a utilitarian belief that social well-being is enhanced by trying to deal with this. Uh, when I say utilitarian, a straightforward sense that trying to remove or, or at least lessen inequality is an advantage. Uh, we also have deeper convictions that the inequality is wrong, just not driven by some weighing of costs and benefits, but deeper principles. And the policy that that, uh, flows on from this is a list of things that you discuss in your talk today, uh, and some of which John talked about, but also centrally education. uh, That that, uh, I see it in my own children, the opportunities that they've been given means that they barring accidents, won't face the grinding labour of the poor, unskilled workers in Britain. And that's true, something that we aspire for for all our children and what we work for in giving them education. (coughs) The second of my ways of thinking about how this growth process... And and it's important to say that the sufficient... uh, In talking about this slogan, caring for the poor, sufficient need in health and pensions and the costs of education to make the aspiration for generalised greater leisure something that's very difficult to add up. And I think that your four days a week is difficult. I just don't think we can go there, given this concern that you've raised in today's talk about... Uh, about technical change and about globalisation uh, and about uh, inequality resulting from it. The second is capabilities. Uh, all of us uh, share some concern about the nature of some consumption, which you describe in your book, and we all think that the possibilities for a good life have to do with creativeness, freedom the development of skills, the acquisition of pride in what one's doing. And again, how do we think about uh, the policy that we want in face of these questions? And it's, again, about crucially about education and about nurturing. And we ask ourselves, how can we uh, find a basis for thinking about policy of this kind? It's partly paternalist, that we think it's necessary that uh, young people be educated more than they might wish. Some are fascinated, others it's, it's, are not. Uh, and that's a cost-benefit calculus of a utilitarian kind, 
looking backwards, they would have been wise to get educated and we can enforce this. But there's also, again, a set of principles that we bring to bear on thinking about this. Lives of a creative, skillful kind are lives which we value and we bring these principles to the thinking of policy. The third uh, of my uh, C's in response to uh, the issues is that of connectedness. Most of your discussion in the book is about uh, the good life for an individual. But to go back to Adam Smith, uh, the theory of moral sentiments was essentially about the good life being something which happened through connectedness with others, people seeking approbation from others as a result of what they themselves do and pursuing such relationships uh, in order to have such approbation, esteem and, 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 and admiration. I've been thinking about uh, the ethics of finance and it's clear that uh, there has not been this sense of connectedness and obligation in the financial industry in the way that there is connectedness with patients and obligation to patients in the best of medicine. And part of uh, the pursuit of a good life thus involves uh, a professionalisation of, of working activity so that those who carry out professions do so with regard to the well-being of others. Again, what principles do we bear to thinking about this policy? Well, there's a straightforward utilitarian way of thinking about it that, for the finance example, the financial crisis caused huge harm and a cost-benefit analysis would suggest that we need uh, finance professionals who act more like doctors in order to uh, construct a society which gives rise to greater well-being for us all. But again, there are some underlying principles. There are some things that you just wouldn't do if you were a moral practitioner in finance, and the, the Goldman's Abacus Short is perhaps the best example of assembling a collection of securities which you knew would fail and were betting on in order to make money from them failing and at the same time selling them to your clients. And your reply is, caveat emptor, it's not my business. That's not what a doctor replies when confronted with moral questions. Again, uh, the, the uh, uh, question of how we justify thinking about policy is important. It came up so much this morning... And in each of my caring for the poor, my capabilities and my connectedness uh, proposals, there is a utilitarian way of thinking about these things, which an economist would do straightforwardly. But there are also principles which we can bring to bear uh, about what one would or would not do in these circumstances, which go beyond that straight economistic calculation. And that brings me finally to my last of my C's, culture. In order to turn this 
uh, Adam Smith vision of increasing inventiveness, joy at the new. Uh, come back to this uh, quite wonderful exchange this morning where Edward uh, said, would, would you have known before the mobile phone uh, that you were missing something? Uh, is that a way of thinking about it? People wouldn't have known before the calculus that they were missing, missing something. But it opened up all of 18th and 19th century mathematics. It's extraordinary. And that's true of what happens with this Smith's vision of life. And that's why I think that this growing economy as something to be proud of is important, providing it's, 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 it's properly managed. And uh, the first of the ways of managing it will be about a politics which cares about equality, uh, caring for the poor. And I said, either utilitarian way or, or because it matters. Secondly, an education system that creates possibilities for children uh, to grow their capabilities and, and teaches them about the importance of connectedness, communities, collegiality, procedures of, of life that involve friendship. And, and, and again, we can think about these in cost-benefit terms or in principles. And I come back as my final thing to say uh, to the religious question that I began with. Uh, Smith took us from the sense of religious justification of life to one which was aspiration about life lived in the material world. But at each of the stages of thinking about reform, I've thought, well, you could do this in a technical, economistic way, or you could bring stronger underlying principles to bear in governing the reform that you were seeking to bring about. And it does seem that a set of religious principles, from whatever position they come may be an important part of this structure of bringing a better form of life to this growing economy. Thanks very much. So that's my cue for talking about religious principles in this connection. And what I'm going to do is to begin by suggesting three areas that religious discourse might propose as relevant in relation to the sort of discussion we've been having, and to move on to some slightly broader considerations which relate to practical policy. So if we were to begin by asking what distinctive perspectives a religious commitment might bring to the discussion we've been having, I'd suggest that we might begin by saying that religious belief assumes that there is such a thing as human cost. Human cost. That is, there's more than one kind of cost involved in our transactions. It's not solely economic or material. There is a cost in terms of becoming less than one might be as a person. There's a cost in the relational resources that might be available to one. There's a cost also, of course, in the environmental um, conditions in which one lives. 
And because religious belief tends to propose the idea that there is, if you like, a normative or optimal way of living in our environment as a material but intelligent subject in relationship, then all these areas of cost are really significant ones. So that's the first point. There's more than one kind of cost, and some of the most significant cost that we recognize in our human activities has to do with that cost represented by becoming less than we could be in our environment. I note there, of course, the discussions that have gone on in the last decade or so about how cost is factored into specifically economic discussions and the increasing pressure from some economists to say, well, we've had far too narrow a view of cost in the last half century or so. We need to factor in, for example, environmental cost as a real cost, not just an externality. I'm thinking here of Partha Dasgupta's work, particularly in Cambridge. Connected to that theme of cost and the diverse kinds of cost, the second perspective that a religious person might want to bring in here is very closely related to Robert and Edward's argument, limit. To be human is characteristically to live within limits. We're not isolated from, insulated from, a world of limited material resource. We are material beings. The economy, as it's been um, pithily said, is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment at the very, very end of the day. There's only so much stuff out there. And more particularly, I think, the notion that it's all right to live within limits, that the limits of aspiration and capacity are just part of what it is to, to be human, that's, I think, a significant dimension of a characteristically religious life. It's not to say that you deliberately depress expectations or deliberately narrow possibilities. It's to say that one of the most significant um, bits of the human agenda is coming to terms with the limits which, as a matter of fact, you unavoidably live within. And that is a creative, a noble, an endlessly interesting and a potentially disastrous exercise, all of those together. But limit is built in here. And the denial of limit, the attempt to live as if there were no limits either to one's own individual aspiration or to the corporate aspiration of the human race to be um, unilaterally and unlimitedly in control of the material world, that is to invite all kinds of disaster, individual and collective. And the third thing arising in part out of that from the religious perspective is that if we're talking about limit, one of the limits which characteristically we live within is the limit prescribed by reciprocity, mutuality. We are who we are because other people are who they are. And that's not just a, a sentimental aspirational observation. It's a bare fact of human growth and of human flourishing. We are who we are because other people are who they are. We are always already indebted. And others are always already indebted to us in certain very important respects. And it's those latter two points about limit and about reciprocity that bear, interestingly, I think, on the discussion that was 
flagged this morning about personality and autonomy. Like some in this discussion, I warm to the word personality and slightly bristle at the word autonomy. And yet I recognize what's going on with that second word. The difficulty many people find with the word autonomy is that it can be used as a vehicle for the denial of limit or the denial of reciprocity in one way or another. And one needs some sort of vocabulary which says there is a secure place from which freedom can be exercised in relationship that is proper to a human personality. But when some, including some of my former colleagues, talk about the perils or um, errors of talking too much about autonomy, I take it that what they mean is that the language of autonomy alone does all too readily buy into a particular kind of myth of what it's like to be human, which is rather toxic in its effects. So how does one hang on to the proper and creative enlightenment sense that human liberty is a good without buying into that broader, um, rather fantastical agenda about control and independence. So it's possibly a nitpicking point, but it's one which I think worth a bit more discussion. Cost and limit and mutuality, three dimensions of the human location, the human agenda, which have a particularly strong profile in religious views of the world, even though bits and pieces of them, of course, are not exclusive to a religious perspective. But they suggest to me two kinds of broader reflection before I get on to one or two specific policy questions. The first has already been flagged up this afternoon, and that's the issue about education, or indeed education, education, education. I'm sorry that we haven't talked more about it today, because it does seem to me that this is one of the areas where the shoe is pinching at the moment in a narrowing of our sense of what it is to be human, a narrowing of our sense of possibilities and resources. An education that works for a flourishing and creative world is, I think, one which is indeed an education, among other things, for leisure. That is, an education for simply being human, exercising your humanity in various um, horizon-enlarging, experience-enhancing ways. And that involves, again to earlier discussions today, some sense of what innate goods are. Some things are good to do. We may disagree about what exactly they are, but some things are good to do, and they're good to do not because they deliver certain highly specified results, but because they are horizon-enlarging or experience-enhancing or however you want to put it. They develop and enrich a personal hinterland. They create a resource for making sense, delivering meaning. They therefore deliver a perspective on any particular experience at any particular time, which enriches your sense of how many things are possible for you, what sort of person you might be. And one of my greatest worries about our educational philosophy and the ethos of education at every level in this country at the moment is that we are rapidly allowing that to be stripped away. The almost obsessive focus that a great deal of 
public governmental rhetoric um, directs to educating for the economy, educating for being a productive citizen, is, I think, poisonous to this broader sense of education for exercising your, your humanity in ways that are innately humane. And those of us who swim through the treacly morasses of the research excellence framework within universities will know all too painfully what I'm talking about here. And if I simply say the word impact, I can guarantee you to clear the room within 20 seconds, I think. So we do need to think quite hard about where we, as in the broadest sense, humanists, might want to push back in education. And that seems to me one of the most urgent questions before us at the moment. We have, in many respects, sold the pass here, again, at every level of education. How we reclaim this, I don't know, but I think we need to give it some high priority. But that leads on to a question which really only came into focus for me as I was listening to the discussion this morning. We're talking about recognising that some things are innately good. We're talking about a proper humanism. We're talking about developing a hinterland that allows you not to be imprisoned by your circumstances, driven to despair or apathy by your circumstances. And that means, of course, that one of the things we characteristically and properly do as human beings is what I'll call, in shorthand, human nurture. Human nurture. And as I thought about this, it seemed to me that that is one of the categories which crosses the boundary between work and leisure, as we were talking about them this morning. It's precisely that notion which I think makes sense of the Morris Glassman point about what you say about those forms of work which are neither simply economically productive nor leisurely. And that covers quite a lot of, of activity, from primary school teaching through to the care of the elderly or of the disabled. It could cover the arts. It could cover, I dislike the, the jargon, but relationship education and support. Human nurture. And that, I think, means those kinds of work, paid or unpaid, which have to do with keeping alive the sense of our capabilities in respect of one another, our responsibility to foster and encourage kinds of relationship, depths of relationship. I think that has quite a bit to do with an area which, curiously, again, we haven't really touched on today, and that is our society's attitude to the elderly. That is to that considerable and growing proportion of our population who are not economically productive in the classical sense, but who are a monumental resource for human nurture, in the sense I've suggested, and who very often respond with enormous enthusiasm and imagination to the challenge to step into that sort of role. I was speaking to somebody at lunch about my own involvement in the last few years with the Abbeyfield network of residential homes, which have a very, very articulate and developed philosophy about engaging the elderly people who are in those institutions in the running of the common life of the residential home, 
in liaison with the local community, in work and contact with local young people, in generally um, keeping alive an imaginative, spirited engagement with one another and with the wider community. I would like to see us as a society putting far more resources into making sure that that kind of environment is available to more and more people in their post-retirement phase. And I think that one of the most hopeful signs I see in terms of the future of our society is a group from a local primary school visiting a residential home and listening to the experiences of another generation. The kind of conversations that arise in that very routine sort of environment. So education, but moving into that broader conception of human nurture as something which makes sense of quite a range of the activities and questions that we've been reflecting on today. But finally, where does that take us in relation to actual policy? Any question about public policy is really a question, as it was put this morning, a question about what it is that the state wants to encourage. We don't, in liberal democracies, believe that states ought to come in with heavy ideological artillery to tell us all that the good life involves and make sure that we perform it. Equally, um, as was pointed out, modern liberal democracy is not precisely value-free. It's not um, entirely indifferent as to what it wants to encourage. And that means that that's an area where we can argue and push the boundaries a little bit. So the two obvious things that come out of this, I think, are, as I've indicated, fighting back on the style and content of education. And by that I don't just mean um, encouraging a more humanistic education, though I think I'd be very happy if that were happening. I actually think that encouraging economic literacy is part of the same program. Because I think that for a great many people emerging from the educational world at the moment, the world of economics looks like a vastly complicated, not very friendly world of threat, crisis and pressure. How to negotiate as an intelligent citizen your own economic life and possibilities seems to me one of the things that most people don't emerge from our educational system with any conception of. And so I would like to roll up that along with the whole agenda of increasing or deepening the hinterland of people in education. I don't think they're at odds. I think they properly belong together because they are about critical perspective. If I had to sum up the function of education, I think I would, I'd say it, it's about becoming a critically and imaginatively alert citizen, a critically and imaginatively alert citizen, which means I think the arts, the sciences and economics all bundled up together. So I'd like to see public policy taking that on board rather more visibly. But building also on what I've been saying about human nurture, I would like to see public policy showing rather more sign of valuing and supporting carers at every level and in every context. That 
might be, of course, relevant to one of the points that was raised this morning about where new employment opportunities arise. I do think that as we reflect more seriously about the needs for professional and adequate and humane care, the need for educated, resourced, sophisticated carers will become more urgent. What exactly are we doing, broadly in policy terms, to encourage and prepare for that? But of course, to speak about care as a priority in our policy, leaving aside for the moment the crucial, essential point of care for the most vulnerable, which David touched on a moment ago, I do also think that um, this is inseparably linked with a social agenda which, broadly speaking, addresses those issues of inclusion and exclusion that have been on the, the edges of some of our discussion, which would include, again, um, taking seriously an increased stakeholding capacity in our business concerns. Um, it's certainly something where we ought to be learning from Germany. I couldn't agree more. I think it's one of the ways we've fallen behind there. What does the state want to encourage? I'd like to think that a mature state, which in some sense was a modern liberal democracy, believed that the critical and imaginative citizen was worth investing in. I don't see a huge amount of evidence of that at the moment in this country or in many others. But it does seem to me that one of the implications, most broadly, of Robert and Edward's book is that if we're talking about leisure in the classical rather than in the rather passive modern sense, we're talking about um, sole or otium. If we're talking about the capacity to invite one's soul and enlarge one's horizon, then we do need to think about how we invest publicly and in policy terms in precisely that business of shaping, nurturing the, the properly critical citizen. And I think that all of that will entail at least weighing those elements I began with from the religious perspective, the sense of what human cost is, the sense of what human limit is, and the obligation of reciprocity. I think that all builds into a properly humane or humanistic education. And without that, we shan't have a society of humane leisure. We shall have a divided, apathetic, uncreative, not just static, but regressive kind of society. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, this is a very general response um, to, to all the comments, uh, the very helpful comments. Um, I, I just want to reflect a little on, on what it is to bring a religious perspective to bear on public discussion, since that's the, the theme of this panel. Um, and there's a well-known view, um, which uh, is associated with Walls, but not limited to him, that when a, when a religious person enters the public arena, he or she is obliged not to appeal to specifically religious doctrines or premises, since those are, are not shared by all citizens. There's reasonable disagreement over these things. Um, 
this is a requirement of public reason. Um, and in a sense, uh, that, that must be true. I, you know, when, when MPs stand up in Parliament, we, we, we don't expect them to, to quote scripture or refer to the doctrine of the Trinity or things like that. Um, but of course, that, and that's not the only way in which a religious pers perspective can be brought to bear in public discussion. Um, uh, one could do it in a more subtle way. Um, I think religious traditions have nurtured and <coughs> safeguarded certain insights, certain perspectives, which are not specifically religious, um, which have a broader resonance. Um, uh, I mean, and, and I think the, the three um, things Ron William mentioned, the notion of human cost, the notion of limit, the notion of mutuality, and these are insights that have t tended to be emphasised by you know, not just Christianity but other religious traditions. Um, and perhaps religious believers are uh, particularly sensitive to these goods. Um, but they're not, they're not specifically religious goods. They can be appreciated by anyone. Um, so the trick then for, for religious people is to try and find a language in which these uh, goods or insights can be expressed in secular form um, in a way that can appeal to people from different traditions or non-believers. Um, uh, Habermas uh, recently introduced a very interesting idea of a sa saving translation. Um, he, was, and he was talking particularly about the, um, how the theological idea of human life as a gift of God has a uh, a non-religious equivalent in the, or is, a, is a religious way of talking about the fact that each of us is not the product of any human plan, that we're the product of random genetic processes, um, and, and that this is crucial to our sense of personhood. Um, and he uses this as a basis of an argument against genetic manipulation. Um, so this is a, 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 a religious or theological insight that can be expressed in secular philosophical language. Um, and I think this is the way one has to do it. And this is, in a sense, what we were trying to do in our book. Uh, many of our basic goods are ones that um, um, you know, ha have been extensively discussed by theologians, um, uh, particularly the good of personality um, uh, and, and the idea that one of the foundations of personality is, is private property, and this is an idea that comes out of the Catholic distributionist tradition. Uh, but its uh, appeal is much more universal than that. Um, so that's just a, a very general reflection on how one might bring religious insights to bear on public discussion um, you know, in a way that doesn't alienate non-believers. Um, well, I'll, I'll reply to a couple of specific points. Um, John Anasoulis, I, I do think, um, well, I, uh, very, very, very uh, entertaining presentation, but I think um, tending a little bit to caricature um, of, of our arguments. For example, I mean, it's perfectly right to, to draw attention to the cost of basic income. Um, and um, the cost is clearly horrendous. But A, but I think, first of all, you were talking about 
um, the increase in, in gross taxation, not net taxation, because there'd be savings on the other side. And secondly, it's as though we wanted to introduce this tomorrow. Um, of course, what we were talking about was, was a transition over time. Um, and one would start off the basic income at a very low level. And then one would build it up with the growth of the economy, actually. Wouldn't be, it wouldn't, wouldn't be designed to cut off the growth of the economy. If that was so, then you'd have horrendous redistributionary problems. But of course, it would, would go with the growth of the economy. And, and £10,000 at the margin can make quite a difference between a choice um, uh, uh, between work and leisure. It's not negligible. Um, so, given, given, given that, uh, in fact, 12 million people actually live on £10,000 a year in this country, um, that's, that's, that, that's, that's, that's a fact. Um, so, that's point one. Point two to David, um, uh, I don't know whether I actually did have anything um, I, oh yes, um, David, 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 you, you I think you said um, our book was mainly about the individual and individual fulfillment and, and you um, talked about connectivity um, and, uh, 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 but that, that, of course, that of course our book wasn't about individuals and individual fulfillment, it was about fulfillment of individuals in, in, uh, in, in communities, in, in, in societies. Um, and, and that was the whole point, of course, of our ideas of friendship um, and, and, and that. So I think we, it, it's, it's, it's individuality and individualism. It's a distinction we didn't really um, develop this morning. Um, but uh, otherwise, of course, I, I really... Now, a lot, of, a lot of what you said, a great deal of it, in fact. Now, education... Education for leisure. I think this is a huge topic, and um, one needs to think very, very hard about it. My problem with everyone pays lip service to education. Everyone. No one says education is a bad thing, um, and I don't either. <laughs> but there are many ways in which there are many meanings one can give to education, and one of them, which I think is the most common one is it sees it in terms of increasing human, the human skills required, improving the human skills required to compete effectively in the global economy. And that is the context. Now, to my mind, that is a very limited view of education. And, 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 and you can see that in the language. For example, um, I think something I left out of my talk, um, but um, economists writing about this, digital technology might um, improve the quality of human labor by levering human skills. So you use digital technology to lever, lever, lever human skills. Um, then you use the data, you use the, the, the huge data sets available now for online learning to um, improve the skills of ideation, large frame pattern recognition, and complex communication. Now, all that can be put in other languages, much more um, uh, human-friendly languages, if you like. But the fact that you have to put them in that language 
and says something about the ideas under the purposes underlying um, underlying um, the education you want. See, I, so I think language emerges as a huge problem in in um, in talking about um, a humane education. I want education to fight back as well, but this is not fighting back. This is this is this kind of education is really to put us into a position to improve the efficiency of our brains so that we can hold the automation at bay for a time. That's really what it's about. Um, and I think that's just, just as a wrong approach. I don't think it'll work anyway. And so, those, that's all I want to say at this point. Uh, maybe we'll turn first to other uh, speakers from the earlier panels who might, might want to add to the several. I was very interested by what Rowan said about, uh, and indeed then Debbie clicked it up, on how you take kind of theological or religious insights, and you you put them in, in kind of secular language, which uh, might be more broadly acceptable. I wonder whether the economists could talk about the ways in which, following Rowan's suggestion, economics might be made more accessible to the population. Is there, I mean, is there an issue of translation? That what we have out there is a large number of people who simply don't understand the economics and see it as threatening, certainly for what said. And I wonder what, what one might do to make it more accessible. <laughs> you like my paper? So, this is a snapshot of the paper, and it won't surprise you that 
I picked a bit with some equations on it um, to make the point. It does start off in words, and the idea is given in words. Um, but what are the equations for? The equations are actually because to get the idea... So this is a paper about whether or not one should defer executive pay and why it is that a, a market economy might lead to firms, especially big ones, such as banks, after a process of consolidation, having too little deferred pay. Now, to make that argument, there's a lot of steps in that argument that highlights trade-offs between the problem of getting efforts to put in executives to put in effort versus getting executives to think about the future. Not all those trade-offs are very difficult to make in a clear form. It actually is much easier to understand when the logic holds, when it's put in those terms, rather than to try and write what would be an incredibly fluffy essay to do with, you know, the industry does this and firms do that and then there is the problem of short-termism and there's effort and how do you trade these things off. And, yeah. So this, this forces one. It's a, it's a discipline. It forces you to be exact, to say that's all you need. And then if you allow the market to work, you'll get these results, and I'll talk about them, and I think they have policy implications. So the maths isn't there just to, you could have said it in words, but we'll say it in maths. The maths is there as a disciplining device, that you really are saying something, that there is a logical flow, and then you have to back out and do, do it in words. So, so I think that, that's why, and that, that brought us back to the, the battle for ideas, because then... You know, that it isn't just a case of some words versus other words. It's like, well, there's the, the idea is concrete. You can show it. And others then have to critique. The assumptions would be what we'd argue about. The education... Not education. Education, I think... I, I agree, too. Education's a great idea. Um, so, <laughs> the... Um, but the sort of literacy... The point. Um, I wonder if, in a sense, what you really mean is sort of financial literacy. You know, understanding what it means to take a loan what it means to get into debt, what would happen if you use credit cards too much. You know, those sort of issues which I see are very important. The idea of sort of understanding, you know, should, do we need to train people to be able to construct arguments about whether or not there's going to be too much short-termism in senior executive pay? I'm not sure that that is something that we really need to worry too much about broad education on it. At the end of the day, I do have to do what Celine says and translate it into something clear with reasoned arguments, but then peers can see that there's something underlying it. I think what... Please. I'd just add to that, I think that economists uh, face a, a big job in explaining uh, their world, their world, this, their understanding of the world to, to the wider community. Thinking of the recent financial crisis, there have been many people, um, myself included, but lots of others, writing in a, a way which is intelligible to non-specialists about what's going on and, and the mistakes, that, the failings that existed in order to see what the right thing to do might be. And part of the task is to explain the connection between the failures and what's necessary in the policy. I think that we need to operate in two ways. We need to do this technical work in the same way that, that in the 150 years after Newton,
people began to realize that they needed to use mathematics to understand how uh, electric light systems worked. And the economy in part is a system, even an individual firm is a system. And the technical analysis has to be technical and then properly explained. And the important part of many of our work is working in these two worlds. Let me give you an e a very simple example from the macroeconomic world that I live in. Uh, Keynes in the 1930s faced a view very like austerity economics now, which said that then the task is to cut wages and that will encourage firms to employ more. And that looks like an obvious idea. Labor is cheaper and you will employ more. It, the, the genius of Keynes's general theory was to show that when you think about the whole economy as a system, when you pay workers more, uh, when you pay workers less, they get less income and they spend less and they buy less products and so firms won't want to employ them. And uh, the general theory nearly died until it was the young Turks working with Keynes who showed how you could write this down as a set of equations. People looked at it and said, oh, of course. And then it turns up in straightforward, simple undergraduate textbooks. But what was needed was that sorting out uh, in much the same way that a lot of the sorting out is necessary in mechanical engineering before you then set about building uh, cars that actually work. And, 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 and people need both kinds of understanding. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit sceptical about some of this. Um, uh, we, 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 we all agree that a hundred years ago, um, economists use much less maths than they do today. They didn't know it. Um, and uh, even, even this was true, as you've just mentioned, at the time of the general theory. And it went on. I mean, the, the, the great economists I, I sort of had the privilege of knowing, even um, uh, as uh, when I you know, was younger, I mean, people like Nicholas Caldor, uh, Ian Little, and, 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 and many others of that generation, um, uh, John Hicks, he was mathematically better. But, but many of them didn't know that much maths. Now, um, so now, um, you have to be mathematically very competent in order to qualify as a professional economist. You might have very good ideas and so on, but unless you can actually set them down in a certain way, you're not considered, um, that, is, that is the badge of profession. Now, why has that been that change? Is it because the world has become much more complex? Um, so that, um, in fact, um, its complexity requires um, sophisticated mathematics to model. Or is it that, um, um, well, connected with that, is, is this kind of modelling productive of much better results for the economy than um, uh, the impact of previous economy, previous generation of economists? We do not have uh, faster rates of growth um, you, that, that can be attributed to the mathematization of economics. We certainly don't. Now, of course, the counterfactual would be if we haven't done this in our study even so. But I don't see, I, I simply don't um, see the smoking gun in favor of mathematics um, as, as, uh, to the extent it's done now. Just to add to that, I, I wonder how much 
but this has to be understood sociologically. Um, I mean, just thinking about my own discipline, philosophy, there's been a similar tendency, not, not so much towards mathematics, but towards you know, very precise, rigorous, logical statement. And I think, before the talk of outreach and impact, the real pressure on philosophers comes from other philosophers. You want to sort of show off before your peers. And the easiest way of doing this is by constructing you know, formal models and arguments. Um, so there's a sort of institutional pressure towards you know, the hard end of the discipline. And I, I suspect you have something similar operating in, in economics. Um, that's, that's my hunch. But the very best people do both. And Paul Krugman is the best example. The person who can write more clearly than anyone else and always starts with an underlying mathematical work. That's just how he operates. But the, the marvellous thing about him is he ends up producing some things that many people can understand way beyond the specialism yeah. that he works. But you know, the genius can transcend any, any, any um, uh, formal formal systems, however restricted, but we're not even concerned with the genius. Okay, we're concerned that the, 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 the people who are produced by the system um, uh, and, and ordinary economists, um, just people who are not going to be prudent. And there, one wonders really whether they're getting the right train, training. And a lot doing of, the right work. Yeah. Doing the right work. A lot of these yeah. people are going to actually advise on policies. Um, they, they, are, they cannot um, 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 uh, produce their ideas in, in, in language um, understandable to policymakers. Chairman of banks did not understand the mathematical forecasting models. They were okay. Many of the people who, were, who, who actually were engaged even at a lower level didn't understand the risks they were running. And in fact, one could have got a, a more alert sense of these risks, I think, um, through the use of ordinary language, in many cases. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I still remain a little sceptical about it, but I don't, don't think one should hold, this should hold the, no, of the discussion. Two quick questions and one comment. One question is about the idea of the Protestant work ethic, which when I learned in economic history was seen as a driving force of, of capitalism. And I just wondered if the work ethic is a good thing or a bad thing. It sounds like it should be a good thing. Um, the second is about inheritance tax, which my intuition tells me is a particularly good policy measure um, because of the way it would constrain inequality being passed down generations. But it hasn't come up today. I was quite interested that that specifically hadn't been mentioned. Um, the third is a comment on education. And I think the humane and economic agendas of education are actually much more closely aligned than you might think, because there's a claim that we're teaching children for the workforce, which isn't true, of course, because education teaches children to be not very good and rather expensive computers, um, and what they're not being taught is critical thinking and problem solving. We do better teaching them to sing and dance and make music than putting them through the courses we do at the moment. I wonder if I could come back briefly on, on two of those things. Um, first, to, to endorse very strongly the, the last comment. I think it's, it's absolutely right that the, um, to teach children to think in the narrow binary ways that computers do a lot better is a complete waste of time and resource. And that does seem to me obvious. But I'd want to broaden that out while we're on education to follow up something that um, emerges from the earlier conversation and perhaps... Back to your, your earlier question, are we talking about economic or financial literacy? Mm. 
I think what I had in mind, really, in raising this question was I would like to see two things. I would like, certainly, to see financial literacy. As you say, what, what happens when your credit card goes, uh, goes askew? What, what happens when you take out a loan and you don't know what the got? Yes, all that. But also, I think as part of that general critical um, approach, a little bit of demystifying of economics. And I think this is perhaps in the background of some of what's been said here. A little bit of demystifying. Um, one of the things that mathematics can sometimes do to those of us who, like myself do, are mathematically near illiterates, is to think, oh, that's too good. And possibly to think, oh, that must be true then. Um, <laughs> and just to, you know, a bit of humanising wouldn't go amiss. <laughs> so I think that's, that's also in my mind. I think, if I'm honest, quite a bit of second-rate science teaching in schools has the same effect of presenting a set of unchallengeable mechanical models. In a way that isn't inspirational in any Yeah, that's right. And doesn't give much sense of how actual, creative, innovative science works. That's, by the way. Um, just a quick word on the work ethic. Good thing or bad thing? Well, um, broadly good in this sense, I think, that... The work ethic assumes two or three theologically quite significant things. Work isn't just a curse. Work is the proper exercise of our human responsibility for collaborating and making the world work. It's, it's, it's positive in that sense. It's the Benedictine principle, working is praying, all, all of that sort of background. So it's not just Protestant, actually. Why don't we talk about the Benedictine work ethic? It's much more fun. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I, I do <laughs> so good in that sense and good also in the sense that um, the taking of time with proper labour responsibility for what one does responsibility to oneself, to one's work and to one's world oneself, one's work, one's world all, all of that I think is, is part of what's positive if the work ethic becomes as I think in post-Viberian discussion sometimes seems if it does become um, the desperate struggle to justify your being there at all by being productive then it's a very bad thing but I think in, in origin there is something genuinely positive and constructive about it if you look at um, what's written about it in the 16th and 17th centuries then it does come from that sense that doing the ordinary well is a perfectly godly thing to do I'd entirely approve that. But uh, could I just add one thing? Um, part of the, to, to what uh, Rowan said, part of the um, work ethic, or rather the culture of um, the virtues associated with the Protestant ethic, were saving um, and, and waiting, not, not, not consuming uh, instantly, um, but over, <coughs> over a longer term. And, and justifying your life in a way over 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 the long term. And what we've got at the moment is a, lot, a great work ethic in one sense, but no, not the other part of it. We, we work hard in order to consume instantly. Um, now that seems to have been a big shift. I don't think people work less hard, and I think they, a lot of people work very responsibly, and they, you know, with with all with all the virtues associated, but they don't save any. That perhaps needs an explanation. 
I wonder if I, I could also just add, again, just picking up on two, so I'm sort of not qualified to talk about the three, but I'll pick a different two. Um, inheritance tax, uh, I, I mean, I'm going to speak for myself. The reason I didn't put it in there is that it's a structure we already have. So I agree with you that it is a good idea. It does lead to more equality, but we already do that. And I wonder if that's perhaps why it wasn't in the... In the book. Well, is it small? Perhaps it could be larger. We really talk about quantum, but it isn't a changing uh, It isn't a changing structure. And on the work ethic, again, I shouldn't put words into the author's mouth, but I I think the book is a very eloquent description. Actually, the work ethic is not so desirable. So, for example, one might think you know, education, the lead tables. One often hears about Asian children. You know, working all hours to do incredibly well at maths tests very early on in, in their schooling. You know, school, in, you know, you do your homework, it's a great work ethic, you can work incredibly hard. That's not, it seems to me, the good life. We would want people to have a, a rounded life. So, have, wanting to work more broadly to support oneself, one's community, the, the environment in which you're, you're in, so that work is something that you do because there is a, a greater good, then that's great. But work as an ethic that you know that it is wrong not to be working and you should be working really hard. I, I, I think the book would say that I would agree with it if it did. That actually that's not so desirable. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I maybe did draw a distinction between the the Protestant work ethic and and the ethic of capitalism, which was a kind of uh, you know secularized and, and somewhat debased form. Um, so. Can I just pick up on what you were saying earlier, Rowan, and connect it with Donald Hay's question? How can uh, uh, economists make what they uh, have to contribute more useful? And I I think it's partly by engaging in discussions like that today. Uh, And uh, I would say that, wouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) All very (laughs) self-serving. That's what I was trying to say in what I said, that in, in thinking about caring about redistribution and caring about uh, greater developments of capabilities and caring about connectedness and communities, there are, there are crude, what, let's not use the word crude, there are just cost-benefit ways of thinking about these problems. And they're inadequate. And the purpose of a good discussion is to show how far you can get with one mode of thinking and then what else you need to do. A a conversation between economists showing how far an economic understanding of of something will take you and what more it is that you need to consider organised around the sorts of points that you made in your talk, Ron, is helpful. And some of those conversations... Uh, involve saying, well, this just doesn't make any economic sense. Don't go there. And that might be the conversation about the the guaranteed minimum income, or it might not. And there's a discussion to be had about that. Um, I think I agree with you on that, bringing it in over time. And that's an economic discussion which can be explained. But then there are wider questions about what this guaranteed in minimum income would po- would make possible and uh, how it would enable people to fulfil themselves. And, and that's a discussion that needs to happen too. And there's a, a, 
extreme dominance at the moment of the straightforward cost-benefit economic calculation period. And I think that's a great waste. I wanted to pick up something rather different than going back to, to what Rowan was talking about. And I think the backdrop to all that we've been discussing today in our society is that we're in a rapidly ageing population. And how does that all factor into this? And I wanted to make one specific, give some one specific example really as a comment, um, which is research that's being done at Newcastle University at the moment. And it's looking at the fact that so many more people are now living into their 90s, late 80s, and the burden of care for those people is falling heavily on their children who are at work, but in their mid-50s into their 60s. And the research that's coming out is showing that a lot of stress-related work issues <coughs> through work are actually masking what is actually stress-related and other issues to do with caring for the elderly, people in their spare time using their leisure to go away and care for their older relative. And we haven't really touched on that today, but Rowan sort of hinted on it when he started to talk about caring yes. and talking about dealing with the elderly. I just wonder if we've got any further comments on that. Sorry. Thank you. Um, I haven't got anything much more substantive to say about it, but I think what you've just said is very important in reminding us that issues around the elderly are not just issues around the elderly. They're issues that transfer down the generations. And I think it, most people of my age, or five to ten years younger, will have stories to tell about the pressures, both practical and emotional, of dealing, let's say, with a parent um, entering what may be a long period of dementia, which may, may be a gradual period of decline with difficult decisions about where, where parents or other older relatives live. So that, that's certainly part of the story. I also want to put into this, right at the other end of the spectrum, an issue about young carers. There are, there's a remarkable number of young people who are caring for variously dysfunctional older relatives, that is, parents with disabilities or mental health problems. Um, and I wouldn't want to leave them out of this picture either. It seems to me that all of that is something which public policy at the moment is shying away from, and I would really like to see more. Yeah, I, I, I think one of, the, one of the things we're um, missing... Uh, or rather uh, reluctant to talk about, is that a lot of um, caring yeah, for, for elderly people is quite disagreeable. Yeah. And therefore, I mean, the, the normal economic response, or the traditional economic response to that kind of thing, is that they ought to be paid accordingly for, for unpleasant work. Yeah. Now, we're, we're evading all that because we're actually importing most of the people to do, or a lot of the people to do the institutional caring, and we're getting them very cheap. Uh, because they're still earning more than they could get in their own countries. Now, I think if we want to be really serious about va va valuing carers, we have to pay them a lot more. And we've also got to pay a lot, lot more, a lot of other people a lot more. We've got to pay teachers a lot more. If we want to, if we, if we want to shift the axis of the society towards the, um, the caring, nurturing side of things, um, uh, we, 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 we have to rethink our scale of we have to rethink our scale of, 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 of um, 
uh, earnings. Um, and we're not doing that at the moment. But of course it goes in a way against what I'm saying because we've, we've also got to think of caring as partly instrumental. I mean, one of, one of the things that uh, it's easy to say because it, it creates a warm feeling in one's um, heart, people care because they care. Actually, a lot of people care because they're paid to. Um, and um, they'll, they'll care better if they're paid more. Um, but the word caring suggests something, um, something that you're willing to do for free, or that you're happy to do for free, or you get fulfilled in doing um, uh, without pay. And, and that is, that's an element of it, of course it is. But uh, we're, almost, we're in danger of ignoring the other bit, the economics of it. I want to thank our, our panelists uh, for a discussion in which the issues have truly become more complex and interrelated as the day has gone along. And I think that that uh, is a tribute to the thinking that all of them have, have done for us. So uh, let's first of all thank the panelists for the presentations this afternoon. And then especially we want to thank Nigel for bringing this whole thing together and let him conclude the, the afternoon. Um, I shan't keep you long. Just to say, uh, first of all, um, thank you and congratulations to um, Robert and Edward for, through uh, your book, uh, inaugurating a discussion about uh, matters as important as what makes a human flourishing and how exactly does economic growth do detract from that? So, thank you for that. I'm glad to hear you put yourself on Germany. It makes also well here, too. Uh, and the fact that we've managed to gather a, a group of commentators with the caliber we have out of busy lives to come here and spend the day commenting is another tribute to your book. Um, so, thank you to you, too. Um, and thank you also to all of our uh, formal contributors today. Uh, you, do, you have come, come here for busy lives. Uh, you have helped to uh, extend and refine the discussion, um, which I hope will continue after this. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, before I let you go, just to say there are seven signed copies of The Markets of Morality on the table. Um, first come, first served, I guess. <laughs> um, apart from that, uh, thank you for your support and have a good weekend. <laughs>